Our Lord and our God, we thank you again for your word and that you have given it to us, preserved it for us, and now by your spirit enable us to to understand it. And we pray as we look at uh, different aspects of this skill and task of interpretation, we pray yet again that you would strengthen us now and as we look at some of these specific figures of speech that you would give us uh, a better understanding that we might uh, more accurately and carefully uh, interpret your word to us. And so we pray these things then in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, well, we uh, have been doing this whole process of uh, the skill of interpreting Scripture, and, and it is a skill. Uh, it's something we begin doing, even as children, as we learn a language and we learn how to communicate and so forth, and, and obviously that applies in all kinds of ways. And now we uh, here are focusing on how we apply this process of interpretation to the scriptures, and there are certain unique things that we need to keep in mind, of course. And um, um, we've been in the midst of looking at some of the different genres, and um, more specifically now we've been looking at some of the different figures of speech that are used uh, in the scriptures, and again, these are things we do every day, uh, but many times we just don't think about it. Uh, we, we just do it, and part of that is because we're raised to do it and think about it, and we don't often pause and, and reflect on it, but uh, the better we understand how these things work, again, the better we'll understand God's word and what he's revealed to us. So here in, the, uh, in this context, we've talked about figures of comparison. And the first two are very similar, simile and metaphor. Uh, and then we talked last time about personification. And this is giving uh, personal attributes to something that is not a person, uh, whether it's uh, an animal or a tree or whatever it happens to be. And then we started on anthropomorphism and anthropopathism. And the first has to do with human forms that are applied to God, uh, our body, right, a hand or an eye or something like that, and then anthropopathism is the application of human emotion in some way or another uh, to God. And so these human characteristics apply to something non-human in personification, now the same idea, but applied specifically now here to God with anthropomorphism. Now, as I mentioned last time, as we just started on this, <laughs> this, of course, can be very... Um, risky, if you will, because our tendency is to apply human aspects to God that should not be applied, <laughs> like our limitations, our, our finitude applied to a fine, uh, an infinite being. We need to be careful about that. And of course, our sinfulness, uh, we can't apply that to God. And so it, it's kind of a risky business, as it were. And yet, of course, God does it. And so we need to... to understand it, and, and make sure that we don't go off in the wrong direction, you might say. So <clears throat> let's look at a, a few examples here then. Let's turn to uh, Exodus, first of all, and chapter 15. And once again, like with any of these others that we've looked at, we could look at many, many, many passages, and you probably... We'll have some in mind as we talk of these things. Uh, but here's one from the Song of Moses, 
Exodus 15, and note here verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Obviously, talking here about the Egyptian army and Egypt even as a whole. Um, So notice then, we're using something human, a right hand, and applying it to God. Now, obviously, God doesn't literally have a right hand. He is spirit. And so we can't... um, literally say that God's right hand somehow came down out of heaven and and uh, caused the events at the Red Sea. Um, but it's emphasizing something very important. Now, some of you are lefties, and uh, um, you might feel a little offended by this, but in the scriptures and even today, okay, the right hand is the dominant hand. Okay, of course, you try to find an instrument made for a left-handed person, that can be kind of hard or, you know, something to that effect. Um, The right hand is the dominant hand. It's the hand of power. It's the hand of strength. It's the hand that that conquers, you might say. And that's the point here. Um, we, We are seeing here in this figurative terminology, God's power and strength, his right hand has become glorious in power. Note, uh, the, the way the whole verse goes helps to explain the point. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, sometimes it's harder, but, but again, we're using something human and applying it to God to uh, get the point of his power over Egypt. All right, so let's turn forward then to chapter 32. <clears throat> what we just looked at is fairly straightforward. In chapter 32, this is a bit more complicated. All right. Now, this is in the context, you recall, of the golden calf, right? Israel's sin there, Aaron leading the way, and so on and so forth. And God says to Moses uh, that he is basically going to wipe them out, start over with Moses. And um, Moses then intercedes for the people throughout this whole section. This whole section here is the issue of sin and intercession for those who are the people of God, those who've already been redeemed. And there's such an emphasis on Moses that points us to Christ and, and so on and so forth. But note especially verse 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Your translation may say he repented uh, or even was sorry or something to that effect. Um, He turned away from this. In other words, he changed his mind, right? He said he was going to destroy Israel and start over with Moses. And as Moses interceded for Israel, he changed his mind. Now, How does that work? I thought God didn't change. I thought God was immutable. How do we understand this? Well, there is a lot for us to get into here, and it is something that I've talked about in other settings, especially in our view of God's character. Um, And I I don't want to get too far afield here. I want to stick to our point. However, um, this is challenging. God is 
God who does not change, and yet it does say he changed here. But I use this example in this context because I think at least part of our answer is found here. This is using a human emotion, a human action, a human way of doing things and applying it to God. It looked like he changed his mind from our perspective, from Moses' perspective, from Israel's perspective. And yet, God had a plan from the beginning. He, he isn't changing in the ultimate sense of changing his mind. You know, like can happen with us. We are determined we are going to do X, Y, or Z, and then we get more information or something happens and we change our mind and then we do A, B, and C instead. Um, there is a, a fundamental change in our approach. So, but there are other times, you know, maybe we can think of this as parents or you who are younger can uh, think of times where your parent has done this where um, it appears like the parent changes the mind, but it's only because they're trying to teach their child something. And they give them maybe some uh, option of uh, a decision or something, and the parent has, has in mind all along what's what uh, he or she is intending and it's for the purpose of instruction and I think we have to apply that point here with Moses he is instructing Moses to be the mediator for Israel he's instructing Israel in regard to this issue so that everybody will uh, call their attention not to Moses but ultimately to the Messiah and um, so um, I I think this is, is, is the point uh, again, obviously, God doesn't have a literal brain with you know gray matter and so forth, um, and yet at the same time, He doesn't have the literal um, aspect of changing the mind in quite the same way as we do. But it's explained to us in a way that we can uh, identify with as humans. <clears throat> so, comments or questions here at this point. I know that doesn't answer all of our questions on that matter, but uh, I think this is the direction that um, we need to go in. Well, let's turn to 1 Kings and chapter 8. Again, I'm just picking some, uh, to some degree, random uh, passages here. Uh, Many others. (laughs) This is in the context of the uh, dedication of the temple now, and Solomon's uh, lengthy prayer here and so forth. And so look at a few of these. In verse 24 in 1 Kings 8, uh, verse 24, uh, you have kept your, um, sorry, you have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Again, God doesn't have a literal mouth or hand, but using human things to help explain Uh, And and so on. Verse 29 then. uh, That your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day toward the place which you said my name shall be there. And and that you may hear the prayer with your servant um, makes toward this place. Now the first one, eyes, again, that's, that's obvious God doesn't have eyes. God does hear though. It doesn't use the word ears here. But he does hear and he does see. He just doesn't physically have eyes or ears. 
And then if you look down at verse 42, another one here. Uh, for they were here of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple and so forth. Okay. <clears throat> here just a few. Uh, we certainly could see others. But God does speak. He does hear. He does see. He has power with his arm and so on. Using human anatomy, basically, to, to help us to understand who God is. All right. <clears throat> well, let's look at uh, some of the Psalms next. Let's turn to Psalm 79. All right. Psalm 79. Maybe I'll get someone here to volunteer to read this. If you'd read verses 5 and 6. two key words here, right? These emotions of uh, wrath and anger or jealousy, depending on your translation here, how they translate those terms. Obviously, now we're emphasizing anthropopathism here, right? The human emotion. But again, it's something human now applied to God. The idea is pretty straightforward, isn't it? God's angry with sin. But we need to be careful we do not apply human anger, in particular the anger that we have that is filled with sin, or jealousy, the jealousy that is filled with sin. We, we can't apply that aspect to God. There is a righteous anger, right? There is the good kind of jealousy. You know, if some guy is hitting on my wife, it's right for me to be jealous. I want her to myself. I don't want anybody else to have her. There's something right about that. Now, I can then respond to it in a very sinful way. I can go punch him in the nose. Okay? That's not the right way of handling it. <laughs> but I, I might go over there and, you know, put my arm around her or something to that effect and say, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, she belongs to me, <laughs> more or less. Um, but you see the point. There's something right about these emotions. Uh, we often don't do them in the right way. <laughs> but um, uh, so as we apply this to God, we need to emphasize the right aspect of anger, the right aspect of, of jealousy or wrath uh, in this case. Uh, some of you may remember, boy, it's been a while, um, eight, ten years ago or something, Paul did a lesson on anger. Sunday school and righteous anger and various aspects of that. Dr. Munson, for the rest of you here, um, so some of you may remember that. Um, all right, let's look at chapter 80 then, and in verse 1, somebody uh, read that for us. Okay. Now, the obvious one here is the ear, right? Okay. But even the dwelling between the cherubim has some kind of uh, human aspect to it. God is omnipresent, right? And yet we can speak of him in a localized way. Uh, and obviously that's the, the point here in the third line. Um, leading Joseph like a flock. Okay. You have the shepherd imagery and so forth. 
they're flowing out of the first line of Shepherd of Israel. So again, we're using human things to help uh, explain God. And one more here in this way. Let's turn now to Isaiah 40. All right, someone read for us verse 11. Go ahead, Eric. God is spirit. He doesn't have a bosom. You, know, you can imagine you know, the parent walking their young, holding them by the hand. Uh, I was doing that with Noah the other day as we crossed the road. And um, again, human things applied to God to help us to understand. So um, God is gentle. God is caring. He is um, protecting and, and providing and, and so on and so forth is, is the image here. All right. <clears throat> Any comments or questions to this point? All right. Now, maybe you're already thinking here. There is a whole other aspect to this, right? I've been saying that God is spirit, and that's certainly true, and he doesn't have a human body, and yet he took on a body, didn't he? You think of Christ in the incarnation here. And the fact that Christ took on a human nature and an actual, tangible, physical body makes this comparison, this figure of comparison, um, not only a natural thing for us to use in explaining God, but almost a necessary thing. How can we understand the infinite? How can we understand something we can't see or touch or smell or something to that effect? Well... God helps us to do that by sending forth Christ. How do we know the Father? Well, know the Son. Think of what Jesus said in John 14, for example, when he is responding there. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, these, these kind of ideas. And so, since Christ took on humanity, the use of human things to explain God is is really required um, and, and is, is certainly extremely helpful for us to, to know the infinite and invisible God. Um, in addition to that, Jesus still has a body. It is um, perfected, it is glorified, but he still has a body. And uh, this leads to a, a number of implications and so forth, but... Um, it's not just that Jesus took on flesh and now he doesn't have it in heaven. He still does. Let's uh, take our hymnals here a moment. And uh, if you turn in the back to the Confession, chapter 8. Let's see here. Um, page 853. Page 853. Now, um, in God's providence, this kind of coincides with what we're seeing in Acts. I've been talking about um, Paul's words to the Ephesian elders, and I'm going to bring out why we read the first part of the Athanasian Creed last week, and we'll finish it today. 
and it fits now with what we're talking about here. And if you look at the second paragraph here in chapter 8, page 853, it says this, The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. In other words, he took on the fullness of what it means to be human. Human mind, human emotions, human will, obviously human body. Uh, and the common infirmities, which would indicate to us that Jesus gets tired. Okay? He, he probably uh, was affected by illness to some degree. Um, and yet without sin, right? he, didn't, he didn't sin, and, and his body was, was um, maybe closer to Adam's body initially, uh, but it still was affected by sin to some degree, and yet, of course, he never sinned. And then you see, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. So you have this divine substance, right, early there at the beginning, and now the human substance. Now the term substance is uh, not necessarily the best term, but we have a hard time explaining this. And the language that the confession is using takes us all the way back to the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and, and so forth. And now here the point I really wanted to emphasize. So that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion. So it's not like the human nature is converted into a divine nature. It's not like he has a divine body. Um, It's a human body. Uh, not composition. It's not like he has a divine mind, but uh, you know, human emotions or something to that effect. It's not composing, but distinct, divine, distinctly human, and without confusion. Okay? So it's not like they're kind of morphed together, and you can't know when it's, it's human nature and divine nature or something like that. Now, this doesn't answer all of our questions, but it gives us some boundaries, some limitations. This is what we, we can say, and we can't fully under, understand and comprehend, but if we go outside of those boundaries, we get into trouble, and we start believing in a different Jesus. Now, I know the last sentence, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So two natures, one person, we say. Well, obviously, we could go down many different paths here in that way. But in regard to this, because of Christ and his full humanity without sin, we use human things to help us understand God. So we see that throughout the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we see it with Christ specifically. All right. Comments or questions then? Yes, Martin. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. There. I would say both. Uh, 
the, the figurative, if you will, is the ultimate point. Okay? He's a God's right hand, meaning he has the authority of, of God. And that's the ultimate idea, the Father, the Son, and then the Spirit, right there as well in Revelation 4, for example. Um, but <clears throat> heaven is not just an idea. It is a location. Um, how all that is is beyond our comprehension at this point. Um, but yes, I do believe that the, the image in Revelation 4, for example, is, is an actual image of a throne and 24 elders around the throne and so on and so forth. Um, um, and yet it's also given to us figuratively, isn't it? <laughs> so that's, that's part of the challenge of apocalyptic literature. Yes, uh, Matthew. How does it not support modalism? Is that what you said? Yeah. Well, we're going to see here in a few moments in Acts, Paul saying that God shed his blood. Obviously, that's not the Father. Uh, it has to be referring to the Son when he says what he says. Um, if, if you believe in modalism, obviously there's one God and there's one person. There's not three persons. Modalism is the same person wearing different hats. Okay? Different parts in the play, and he's playing all those parts. But we clearly see in many places from the very beginning Genesis 1 <clears throat> the Father God creating all things the Spirit hovering over the waters verse 3 God speaking John tells us in John 1 that's a reference to Christ so you have all three together you see the same thing in Revelation 22 verses 1 and following you have the throne of God you have Christ the water which represents the Spirit um, we're going to see here in Acts 20, Paul puts all three together in verse 28. Um, so they are they are distinct, yet they are all God. Um, but we're having a hard time explaining it, aren't we? We call them persons, <coughs> using a kind of anthropomorphism, <coughs> but it's it's beyond our ability to, to fully comprehend. That's for sure. But we have our boundaries, and we stay within that. Okay? So modalism goes outside of that. They're saying, okay, there are three persons here. There is one God. Well, that must mean there is one God playing the same, uh, same person playing different parts. Well, now you've gone outside of those boundaries and uh, get into trouble. Other comments or questions? Now, I'm not quite sure where to put this, but I'm putting it here, um, and I'll explain why. But some people will like to talk about what I'm going to say here in a, in a different context, especially in the context of our views of knowledge and epistemology and, um, and so forth. But here it is. In one sense... Everything that we say about God is anthropomorphic and anthropopathic. 
in a certain sense, that is true. We are egocentric, aren't we? (laughs) We might see that in our children very evidently, but that's true for all of us. We are very egocentric. Everything that we encounter and observe, we filter through, you know, these eyes and this understanding. And so it may or may not be true. It might be the wrong perspective, but everything filters through us. So in that sense, as we talk about God, everything is understood from our perspective to a certain degree. Now, some people take that to its ultimate extreme and therefore say we can't really know who God is at all. All we know about God is our perspective of him. Well, that's not right. You can't say that because God's made himself known, right? Here in his word, here in in the things that he has made around us. So God has made himself known to us. If he didn't do that, we wouldn't know him. If we're not made in his image, we wouldn't know him, and so forth. Um, but that said, he has made himself known to us. And so what we do know from his special revelation and general revelation is accurate knowledge. Um, and yet it still is filtered through <laughs> our perspective as humans. Um, and so... Part of this discussion, then, is what we call the the negative way. Um, And the negative way means we cannot fully explain God, so we use a no or a not with it. So we, we cannot comprehend infinity, so we say that God is not finite. Right? I'm finite. I understand that. I don't understand infinity, so I'll just say God is not finite. He is not like me. And so that, uh, you could say the same thing about immutability. We are mutable, right? We change all the time, but God does not change. He is immutable. We can only touch on understanding it based on the fact that we don't, or that we do change. Uh, or independency is another key word we use here. We are dependent. Okay, just even what we're doing right now, we are dependent on all kinds of people to be sitting here on a bench that's not falling apart, on a floor that's not falling down, okay, on clothes that are keeping us warm and modest, and you know the food that we ate is keeping our bellies full. And you know we're so dependent on so many different things, but God's not dependent on anything. And so again, notice we're understanding it from our dependency in saying God is not dependent. Do you see how this is fitting with anthropomorphism? We are explaining something from our perspective. And our perspective is finitude, mutability, dependency, and we say God is not like that because we cannot really understand this idea of no beginning, of no limitations, of of not needing anything or anyone. We, it's hard for us to imagine. And so, <clears throat> some big fancy terms that we use here in this way then are these.
univocal, equivocal, and analogical. All right, anybody know what these terms refer to? All right, well, univocal has the idea of being the same. So in this context, then, to say that, let's use the example of um, God's wrath or uh, anger or jealousy that we read uh, from Psalm 79. Is the terminology that we're using that God is jealous, is that univocal? In other words, when we say that God is jealous, is that the exact same thing as saying that we are jealous? No. Is it equivocal? Is it fundamentally different that I am jealous and God is jealous? And that doesn't really work either, does it? Because we can understand jealousy, right? So the the term that we use here is analogical. And that is, it's some of both. It is true to say that God is jealous. That is a true statement, and we can understand what that means. Yet, it, it, it's not exactly the same, because our jealousy is filled with sin. And so we see a connection, but we also make a distinction. And so... Um, some other terms that we use here and then in this way is incomprehensible and comprehensible comprehensive or different parts of speech there Um, on the one hand God is incomprehensible. We cannot understand him. He is God and we are not. We cannot fully comprehend everything about God. So we say he is incomprehensible. But we um, can comprehend um, some things about God, but not everything about God. And so the other term we use here then, is uh, apprehend. That's the verb form. You got the other parts of speech again. Okay, so, <clears throat> what's that? Oh, I forgot the R. Thank you. All right. Now, do you see the point here? God is not so incomprehensible that we cannot know Him at all. He is not so comprehensible that we master our knowledge of God. It's somewhere in the middle, isn't it? And some things we can apprehend, that is, have a certain knowledge of it. Some of those things we can understand quite well. We think of God's uh, what we call communicable attributes, 
love and justice and wrath and jealousy and and so on and so forth. We can apprehend those more than we can apprehend his infinity and his immutability. And that's because we are made in God's image. We are not infinite. We are not immutable, but we are loving and knowledgeable and truthful and so forth. Certainly not perfectly, but we can understand it better, right? So, um, this is the one extreme, this is the other extreme, and this is somewhere in the middle. And there's a continuum here of analogical knowledge. Some of it is closer to being univocal, and some of it is closer to being equivocal. Um, Now, for those of you who may be familiar in uh, reform circles, there's been a huge debate among Gordon Clark and Cornelius Van Til on this issue. And, um, and so this was, oh, maybe, um, uh, my dates are foggy in my mind. I think it was in the 50s or 60s, something like that, where this was a big, um, a big debate. And Gordon Clark, I think they both are analogical though I don't think they would like me to tell them that. Okay? Gordon Clark would lean toward the univocal end, and Cornelius Van Til would lean uh, er, uh, toward the equivocal end. But they really are somewhere in the middle. It's just on different uh, aspects of that uh, continuum. Um, <clears throat> so, again, this is a whole nother discussion, a whole different topic in our ability to interpret things. If you say the Lord is my shepherd, and that is an equivocal statement, then how are we going to understand what it means? Where is the comfort in that? If we say that God is my judge, where is the threat in that? That we, we need to have the right kind of fear in that sense. Hey, if we don't believe in Jesus, we're facing God as our judge. So we, we can't go to one extreme or the other. And um, the answer is somewhere in the middle. And anthropomorphism does help us in our understanding of some of these things. Is, uh, in the end, what I'm trying to say. And why I think it, this discussion can fit with this particular topic. So anyway... Much can be said, of course, um, but a few a few um, summary words in this way. All right. Well, Beth told me I had to quit, so um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for for who you are, and that you are beyond our ability to comprehend. For if we could comprehend you, you would not be God. And we thank you for that. But we are also thankful that. You have made us with the ability to know you, made us in your image, revealed yourself to us, explained yourself to us in ways that we can at least get some understanding and apprehend knowledge about you. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your eyes and your ears, your mouth and your hand and your arm, your bosom, your emotions, your love, your your wrath, and, and all these things. We thank you for Christ, who makes you uh, apprehendable and uh, more real to us 
that we might know you and that we might then live for you. And so, Lord, we thank you for these things. And we, we ask now that you would strengthen us by your spirit to worship you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that you would take our finite and very corrupt worship. And that you would uh, filter it through Christ you might be honored and glorified, and that uh, you would advance your kingdom among us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.